Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Investors continue to hunt for growth in Africa. That includes sports fans as the 11th African Games wrap up in Brazzaville, Congo, Friday. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the African Games, as well as their return to Brazzaville, which hosted the first event back in 1965. The African Games, also called the All-Africa Games or the Pan-African Games, are a continental multi-sport competition held every four years. Events in Africa will be carefully watched for revenue potential, sponsorship development, and television distribution. Look for Africa to be a major player in the sports scene in the next 20 years. $21 million. That's how much the Chicago Cubs may be able to boost the team's payroll next season. The gain coming from increased attendance at Wrigley Field this season is nearly 3 million fans will have visited by the time the regular season ends in October. The growth occurring as the historic venue undergoes a multi-year renovation. The plan's working perfectly. Wrigley renovation generates more revenue and excitement. The young team overperforms. More revenue created to pay the higher payroll as contracts mature and as new players are added. The last chapter in the book would include playoff wins and multiple World Series. Let's just see. The San Diego Chargers could be heading north. The city of San Diego and San Diego County have been unable to come to terms with the Chargers for a new stadium, eliminating any chance the city holding a January 12 special election on the project. City officials thought they'd have until June 2016 to put a stadium proposal before voters, but city officials and their stadium task force repeatedly ignored the advice of the NFL. The lack of a stadium deal increases the likelihood of the team relocating to Los Angeles. The race to L.A. is heating up. San Diego, Oakland, and St. Louis scrambling to maneuver around a late 2015 deadline, and the NFL certainly is attempting to settle the situation by Super Bowl 50's celebration in California. And speaking of California, it's home to two of the top 10 NFL players under 25 in social media. Oakland Raiders quarterback Derek Carr is number five, and receiver Armari Cooper, number seven. Number one is sure-handed New York Giants receiver Odell Beckham Jr., who is about 600,000 Facebook fans and more than 2 million Instagram followers. That's according to MVP Index. Let's stick with the NFL, but take our discussion overseas as we talk to the man in charge of growing the game internationally, Mark Waller. Mark Waller, I heard it's a rumor that you're the first Kenyan-born executive vice president of NFL International. Is that correct? Uh, I'd have to check my fact book to make sure, but I suspect that would be true, yes. Well, in a broader context, I'm sure you were a football fan growing up, but the real issue is which football? I grew up with both footballs, in fact. So when I was growing up, obviously, English soccer. 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 Yeah, soccer. soccer. As it's called here. Um, was my number one sport, but actually at the time that I was growing up, American football in the UK uh, was also breaking through, so I was a, a smaller fan of, of American football. In your earlier life, you worked with, directly or indirectly, Guinness, Johnny Walker, Tangare, and Dewars. Um, other than the fact that both jobs are intoxicating, what does one have to do with the other? Alcohol uh, and the NFL. They, they both 
teach you a lot about passion, uh, fandom, uh, and give you a good insight into the male uh, personality, I would suspect, more than, more than most other products. And in all seriousness, February 1, 2006, obviously a watershed time for you. You joined the NFL uh, marketing and then international. So broadly defined, what's your biggest accomplishment in the last um, nine years? Um, well, I'm still here. Yeah. So, other, <laughs> other than that. Um, I, I put down a couple of things. I, I, I think the, the birth of the international uh, series that we're, we're now going into our, our 10th year, I, I'd like to think that uh, that was uh, at least in part my child. Um, very proud of that and very proud of how, how we've grown uh, that, I think, into something really significant and, and meaningful um, for the NFL as a whole, not just in, in the UK. Um, spent uh, five years as CMO uh, and a lot of time working on broadening the appeal, particularly to uh, female fan base, which has grown uh, 9% over the last uh, five years. So, so proud of that too. Well, let's talk about both of those in sure. inverse order. As the CMO, um, which means the whole marketing effort of a 10, 12, 15 billion dollar year organization is driven by a guy who wasn't born here pretty significant testament to your qualities and abilities to rise above the fray and, and do what the NFL wants, I think. Yeah, I would, I would hope a good reflection of the diversity uh, and open-mindedness of the NFL as well, the, the preparedness to take on a, a CMO with a, with a different uh, background, uh, and then repeat that when Dawn Hudson took over from me uh, six months ago, so bringing in a very senior seasoned uh, female uh, chief executive as well as uh, head marketing officer. So, uh, yeah, I think a good testament to to the breadth with which we look at our fans. Well, sorry. So let's talk about the marketing first, and then the international component. Broadly defined, we know we don't always agree with Forbes, but the values from the last study say the average NFL franchise about a billion four three and higher, twenty three percent increase every year. Big deal. Cowboys are three point two billion, they say, and the Rams nine thirty. Is that disparity healthy? Uh, disparity drives competition, uh, and I think our our big belief is you have to have intensely um, strong competition between teams at all levels, whether that's on the on the playing field or, or around generating revenue. So uh, disparity is is good. Too broad a disparity probably unhealthy, and so part of our job is to ensure that. And the 32 teams, the, the sort of the lower quartile of teams is constantly uh, raising the bar uh, and raising its bar so that the whole of the league can be elevated. And one of the best ways to do that is the unique um, consistency of sharing a lion's share of the national and international television revenue among the 32 teams. And in that, in that context, broadly defined, what is TV today? What is streaming? What's a screen? What is mobile? I know we were, we're, we're streaming the second international game, but, but give me a, a, a big take on that one. I, I think it's incredibly difficult now to define what TV is. I, I look at my son. Uh, my son rents an apartment in New York. He does not uh, pay a cable bill, um, but he does uh, manage to access uh, all the content that, that he wants to access on his laptop or, or his mobile. And um, if I was to say to him, you don't watch TV, he would look at me and go, no, I do. I just happen to get my TV programming through my, my laptop or my phone. Um, so I, I think now it's, it's much more about the broad integration of media rights. Well, and the, the other flip side of, the con of this, you ask owners what the big, one of the biggest concerns is we've 
all invented a term, decouching, Levi's the 50th uh, Super Bowl and the stadium in San, Fr San Francisco, Santa Clara, and the uh, new uh, renovation of Sun Life, etc. The better stadium causes more uh, turbulence to uh, uh, get people off the couch. Is it a tide that lifts all boats? What, what's the trade-off between better in-game experience and, and better watching experience? I, I don't think there is a trade-off. I think you have to have both, but you also have to remember that watching on TV, if the stadiums aren't full and lively and brilliant, yeah. uh, is not a great experience. So it has to start with full stadiums. And as you rightly point out, we've put a huge amount of time and effort and investment in the last 10 to 15 years into making sure that the stadium experience is extraordinary, whether that's um, the Levi Stadium, um, AT&T Stadium in, in Dallas, the, the work going on now in Miami, the new stadium in Minnesota. Those stadiums have to be the ultimate fan experience. And so fan experience relating to the brand, your all the job descriptions talk about marketing, brand strategy, and long-term fan development as as one part with international and the other. On the branding side, it's a bit of an amorphous concept. How are you accountable and how do you view success in building the brand in a positive way? Ultimately, you build your, I believe you measure your success in, in two dimensions, the, the size and depth of your fan base. So how many people do you have? How much do they love you um, or not love you uh, on particular days? And then secondarily, what do they feel about your brand? So our, our goal is, is to bring hope to people, to bring joy uh, to people, to bring people together in a sense of community and to make sure that the experience is a truly intense and meaningful experience for them. So we measure that aspect of how many fans have we got and what do we do for them? Last branding question before we go to international. Sure. Uh, however, however it ends up, how, did, how does Deflategate, Ray Rice, domestic abuse... All of those issues impact the brand long term, and if there is some residual impact, how do you turn it around? Every issue impacts our brand. That's one of the um, yeah, one of the things you have to recognize. If you have a leading brand and 180 million fans, which we have in the U.S., then things that happen to your your brand, good, bad, or indifferent, are going to impact it. Uh, and so our job is to make sure that first of all we get the learning when things go uh, go wrong, when they're not what we want them to be, uh, and secondly. That from that learning, we get better. That's our job. We need to serve fans and the game better. Um, and generally speaking, I believe we do a pretty good job of that most of the time. Sometimes we'll make mistakes, and when we make mistakes, we learn from them. Let's segue into international. So what, five years from now, what percentage of all NFL revenues is expected to come from your world? Uh, I, I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd like to think that we would be a, a strong 15% uh, maybe 20% if, if we've got a good following wind of, of total revenues. There's a huge upside for us, I believe, in, in the international uh, aspect of the business. We, we're small in the majority of markets. We've got a great product, um, so we've got to grow. In that context, before we talk about specific countries, is it, is it merchandise? Is it television? Is it awareness? Is it corporate sponsorships? What are the dimensions of that success? I, I think the primary di dimension for us is media consumption. Given that we don't play many games yeah. live outside of the U.S., the only way that the vast majority of fans are ever going to experience our game is, is through watching it, either on television or increasingly on their laptop or their phone. And so the primary metric for us 
to grow has to be our ability to reach fans with our media. Let's talk about England. You've lived there. You've spent most of your time cultivating the international expansion there. Um, the Jaguars have committed those four games. Do you view the current series in in England as a as a series of yearly one-offs? Is it going to lead to a permanent franchise? What, what, what are, what's the process for that? Um, first of all, I, I see the, uh, what we're doing in the UK um, as essentially three things. First of all, can we put a franchise in the UK? So testing and building that market. Secondarily, could we apply a similar model to other markets? So the live game experience is what caused the game to be great in the States. So there's no reason um, to believe that um, that won't happen in the UK or in, in other markets. And thirdly, one of the things which we've learned from playing in the UK is when you play in that time zone, you're able to actually be live in the UK, live in the morning in the Americas, and live in the evening in Asia. Um, so it's actually the ideal spot with which to have live games that can then reach the entire world, which is part of the reason that the Premier League uh, and other European soccer leagues have become so globally relevant because their time zones work for all corners of the world. TV time zones as far as America. So the first game this year is the Dolphin quote-unquote home game against the Jets, the first intra-divisional rivalry as you've promoted it. Mm -hmm. You're creating a class of working zombies because from 9.30 a.m. Eastern all the way through midnight, now there are four windows. Are, are you proud of yourself? Um, I'd like to think that we, we created the opportunity. and Actually, we got it last year, the first time we played the early morning game. For the first time, we actually had really positive feedback from American fans. American fans generally, and not surprisingly, are not great fans of giving up games to have them go and be played in the UK. You only get eight home games uh, for your home team, and so the idea of giving that up um, to help grow the game in, in Europe or elsewhere, not necessarily... A popular one. So actually last year we got a ton of emails from fans going, hey, it's great. I can actually wake up in the morning and, and watch, in that case, I, I believe it was the Falcons and the Lions game. Which was uh, a great game. Which was a great game as well. So that was yeah. a great game to yeah. wake up to. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, the other dimension of all of this, I guess, is some of the logistical considerations that pundits like to talk about. Is it too far? Um, would we have a permanent team in, in London? How would that work? Are we working those issues out over time? I know you're learning, but what are some of the specific processes you're dealing with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the entire process is designed to extract learning. So um, playing games on consecutive uh, weekends, that's a, a learning. Can we actually have a field in a stadium in, in London that can support back-to-back -back games? The stadium we play in Wembley, which is a great venue, also hosts England games for soccer. So can we play two NFL games and then have an England game? played the following week. That's an important test. From a player standpoint, uh, one of the great things about the Jaguars and their commitment is we get real learning year in, year out about what it's like to keep going back. Do you, does your body actually uh, acclimatize more quickly when you're playing your second or your third uh, game? So we like to think that all of the stuff that we're doing in the UK at the moment is helping build that learning to answer that question as to whether we can put a team. So Blake Bortles, a quarterback for Jacksonville, is actually a medical guinea pig for the future <laughs> of cross and transatlantic games. Uh, yeah, he might be, and I might consider him first and foremost a quarterback of the Jaguars, but he's definitely helping. He's definitely helping with the learning. Other countries, I know Germany is of interest to you. Give us a prioritization of what you want to do and how you want to do it. Um, high on our list at the moment would be getting more games back into Mexico. If you remember, actually, the first international series game, 
ever was played in Mexico City in 2005. And oh, was by the a way, great one success. of the great success, one of the worst on the field games in the history of the NFL. But that, but that, that I didn't see that game. So of course I, you did. I, I, so okay. I couldn't be a testament. I couldn't be a testament <laughs> to that. Uh, but it was de- it was definitely a learning yeah. um, for us. We want to go back, so we're doing a lot of work at the moment, looking at stadium uh, options there, and you know, what what would we need to do to to get comfortable. Uh, I think we have great upside in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a great, we have a great fan base there. The game is played uh, locally at the amateur level, and we need to be, get much more involved there. We closed down NFL Europe, and and to be honest, focused on the UK, probably be, um, missing some opportunities in Germany. And then I think we've got an interesting test in China, where we've got a small office, really focused on customizing digital and social media uh, content, and really experimenting with. Can you actually get fans into the game purely through a digital and social media um, content play? Do you ever see a day where there is an Olympic consideration of this football? There is a process that other sports have gone through you didn't expect. So what, what's the what's the goal there? What's the expectation there? Um, I, I don't think we have a goal there at the moment, but I, I would certainly imagine that we would at some point be ready to look at how we might help build that platform. I think first and foremost for us, though, we've got to establish credible, um, meaningful presence in key markets yeah. so that the, the sport can be meaningful to true sports fans around the world. Finally, on this side of it, um, can the NFL, in your estimation, ever become a, a global game, maybe in the context of a conversation of, of soccer and cricket and some of the other events? I, I think a lot depends there on what, what your definition of yeah, a global sure. game is. I believe we are already a very meaningful game for avid sports fans yeah. around the world. What we don't have at the moment is local relevance 365 days a year. Um, and that really, if you look at the NFL here or soccer in Europe, that's really what the preeminent sports do. It's not just about the weekends that they play or the Super Bowl or the final game of the season. It's about day in, day out relevance and, and that's something we've, we've obviously got to work on. Finally, close back to home. Who are your big one or two business heroes and marketing heroes? Um, I, I'm a huge uh, fan of Starbucks. Uh, what, they, what they did for coffee. I mean, I, 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 have, I have no idea what the data is, but I would imagine that that what they've done for the for the coffee category is truly yeah. extraordinary, and they will have got some benefit from that. But other coffee uh, companies will have as well. So not only did they build a huge business for themselves, but they actually build a huge culture um, for that product. So I'm I'm a big fan uh, of theirs. Uh, I'm a big fan of Apple. Um, not surprisingly, who, uh, who wouldn't be? Hmm. Um, but but again, for me, they they've created uh, a culture around their products. Um, so it's not just about the products themselves. It's sort of the whole experience that goes uh, with them. Those would be two, probably two pretty obvious ones. And learning from other kinds of um, lessons. Do you talk to marketing folks in other, in a, in other sports uh, here across the pond? What do, you, what, do you, what do you learn from other sports? Yeah, well, first of all, we're, we're very fortunate, obviously. We deal with great broadcast partners, great media yeah, partners, sure. great sponsor uh, partners and licensees. So we get learning from... Companies like Nike and NBC and you, know, you name it, we, we partner with the vast majority. So we get to learn a lot. Uh, and I, I think, obviously, the, the learnings are very different. The, the consistent learning, I think, is, is 
you have to be obsessed with the experience that your brand delivers and you have to consider that any single interaction, no matter how big or small, is a brand interaction. And so manage your brand accordingly. It's a good idea. And so projecting the future, a couple more. Uh, where is NFL International in five years? Uh, I would like to think we were launching our uh, our first uh, our first season of a, of a London based franchise. Mm. Uh, I'd like to think that we were playing games uh, in Mexico, um, maybe playing the first uh, or second Pro Bowl in Brazil, um, and hopefully uh, with a large and vibrant media business in, in China, maybe in partnership with with somebody who can really uh, help us from a media distribution standpoint in that market. And uh, biggest challenges today. Biggest challenges in the next few years for you, for the for the entity? I, I think keeping focus on on the brand, keeping focus on the fan experience and, and keeping the game the most aspirational game that, that fans want to be a part of. I think that standard of excellence is is has got to be our guiding star. Roger Goodell has said publicly he's challenged his staff to generate twenty-five billion dollars a year by twenty twenty-seven. Uh, are you up for your fifteen percent stake in that? I am up for my 15% stake in it without a doubt. Um, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. The NFL is in really good hands. If I were to say that uh, you were a Brooklyn born and all of that accent was just a fiction, what would you say to me? Good I say you've discovered the truth. <laughs> thank you, Mark. Not at all. Appreciate good it. Good to see you. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. The producer of the show is Alex Cohen. Audio producer, Adam Wieson. Technical assistance provided by Jamie Weber, Tanner Simpkins, and Carlos Waddick. The executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.